We, uh, we, how many of you watched Line of Duty? Quite a few of you. We had never watched it ever until about two, three weeks ago when uh, the new series started and we thought we'd give it a try. And, uh, and within one episode, we were absolutely hooked. But here was the problem. This was series five, okay? So we had a tough decision to make. First world problem, I know. But we had a difficult decision. Do we continue to watch series five, which had already gripped us with the first episode, or do we go back to series one and start all over again? And that's what, with persuasion from my wife, we decided to do because she said we need to know the backstory. If we just watch season five and then go back, it'll spoil it because there's probably lots of things that happened in the first four seasons, which makes sense, which have led up to season five. And so we won't fully understand and appreciate season five until we have watched seasons one to four. And so we finished the first season. We're about to start the second. And I think that, that Palm Sunday and Easter is a little bit like that. It's very easy to start today with Palm Sunday and work our way through Holy Week to the crucifixion on Friday and the resurrection on Sunday. But we need to understand a little bit of the backstory to get the context of what's happening. Otherwise, we will not fully appreciate actually what was taking place on Palm Sunday. What was it all about? What was the significance? We need to understand understand a little bit about what was happening before this. What was really going on? How did we get here? Before uh, we look at Mark chapter 11, before Mark 11, we have Mark 10. I went to Clowna and even I know that. And uh, in Mark 10, Jesus, uh, well, let's just read Mark 10, 32 to 34. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So Jesus at this stage is 33 years old. He has about three, just over three years of public ministry. But in the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have absolutely no record before this of him ever having visited Jerusalem. In John's Gospel, we do have a number of occasions where he's there at a different feast. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he never has visited Jerusalem, which is strange because it's a capital. Generally, he stayed out in the countryside in the smaller towns and villages around Lake Galilee. Why didn't he go to the great city of Jerusalem too often? Well, it was too dangerous. It was too tense. There was too much risk of him being caught by the authorities and punished and crucified too early. He had become more well-known as the three years had gone on through his miracles and through his healings. The crowds were talking about him everywhere. But as the crowds began to appreciate Jesus more and more, the hostility from the Jewish authorities and especially the Pharisees intensified and grew. And so 
their, their base, their, their, their camp, their, the, the center of, of, of Judaism was a temple in Jerusalem. And so you didn't go, he didn't want to go there. It was too risky. But like in Northern Ireland in, in past times, there were certain places you didn't go because it was too risky. It was too dangerous. Uh, whatever side of the fence you were on, you didn't go to certain places because there was a chance that you would be harmed. And Jesus didn't go to Jerusalem too often just because it was too dangerous for him. And that's why it says, if you look at it, they're on the way up to Jerusalem, Jesus leading the way. The disciples were astonished and while those who followed were afraid. They're astonished. They're afraid because they know that Jerusalem is the place where there's people who are waiting to kill Jesus. It doesn't make sense. That's why they're astonished and afraid. But Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen in the next seven days. You know, some people talk about Jesus' death on the cross as as if it was some tragic accident that shouldn't have happened. As if it was bad people just took a good man's life. It was some tragedy and it just it shouldn't have happened. It wasn't meant to be that way. Some other people talk about Jesus' death as being just a good example. that, That Jesus showed us how one man can can sacrifice himself just to, to show us how we should sacrifice and serve others. And his, 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 his sacrifice is just a good example for us to copy. No, Jesus' death wasn't just an accident. Jesus' death wasn't just a good example. In Mark ten forty five, Jesus makes this very clear. Again, this is just before chapter 11. He says this, for even the Son of Man, this is Jesus' title for himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' life wasn't taken from him. Jesus laid it down. Yes, his sacrifice is an example, but it is so much more than that. If you fall into the river ban, and I jump in and I save you, but in saving you, I drown. I'm a hero. I have done something good to save you. I have done something to show my love for you. And in doing that, I have died. And that's to be lauded and that's to be praised. If I'm walking along the river bam with you and I'm saying, I just want to show you how much I love you. I want to show an example of how much I love you. And I jump into the barn and drown. That doesn't show anything. It doesn't accomplish anything. There's nothing praiseworthy about that. Jesus' death was not just an example. It actually accomplished something. And that was to seek and to save the lost. That's what Jesus knew he was doing as he walked towards the, to Jerusalem at the beginning of this Passover week when tens of thousands of pilgrims would descend upon this great city. He knew exactly what lay ahead. 
He had been teaching and preaching for three years. He had been confronting the religious hypocrisy and the abuse of power by the Pharisees. There had been the healings and the miracles and the crowds were growing and his popularity was increasing and the fever pitch was reaching its pinnacle. And before this in John's gospel, he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. This takes place in John chapter 12. In John 11, Lazarus is raised from the dead. He'd been dead for four days. And so the word was spreading because people knew this. This was a very public miracle. This was the greatest miracle he had done. Four days, this guy had been dead. People were outside the tomb and Jesus comes along and says, Lazarus, come forth. And he comes out. Everybody knew about it. So there was this frenzy. There was this excitement. There was this uh, buzz in the air that Jesus was perhaps more than just a rabbi. People were beginning to join the dots a little bit. They were beginning to read the Old Testament. The, well, that was just their, their Bible, and they were beginning to read the prophecies, and they were beginning to join the dots and realize, maybe, just maybe, just maybe, this is the Messiah. Could this, could this be the one? Could this be the person we've been waiting for, longing for, praying for, for centuries? The one who was going to be sent from God. The one who was promised. The one who would deliver us from Roman oppression. The one who would set us free from bondage. The one who would overthrow the Romans and bring us back to the former glory that we enjoyed under David. Could this be the one? Jesus knows exactly what's happening. It's all on God's timetable. And Jesus is actually going to provoke conflict here. Jesus is actually going to provoke this final conflict. You see, if you've read the Gospels, you know how many times when Jesus does something significant, does a great miracle, what does he say to the person he's healed? Don't tell anyone. Don't reveal. And when the demons began to say, you're, you're the, the son of God, he silenced them. He wanted to keep his messiahship a secret because it wasn't the right time. And yet here, he begins to bring things more public. He knows exactly what he's doing. It's a highly public and provocative act. This is Sunday, Palm Sunday. In five days, it would be Friday, the Passover. And the Passover was celebrating and commemorating the the, the deliverance of God's people from slavery and oppression in Egypt, but it was also looking forward to the deliverance of the Messiah. On Passover Friday, tens of thousands of lambs' blood would be shed in the city of Jerusalem. Just in five days from now. And Jesus knows that those lambs, those tens of thousands of lambs, their blood does nothing. It has no uh, power to take away sin. But he knows that there's one lamb whose blood can take away all sin for all time, for all eternity. And that's his blood, the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this was not any surprise to Jesus. This was exactly planned. Let's keep reading Mark 11, 1 to 3. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany, At the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it 
and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here shortly. Now, some people, some scholars think Jesus had supernatural knowledge here, that this was some prophetic act that he was sent to the disciples and that somehow he could prophetically see where the donkey would be and that he knew exactly what would happen. And that is probably part of it. But, and, 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 and he says, when, when you go to get the donkey, they'll say, why are you doing this? Which is a fair question. Like, go to apprentices tomorrow, take a BMW and say, Jesus needs it. You will get stopped. So, so what are you doing? And he says, the Lord needs it. It could be supernatural. Or it could be that Jesus just knew the owner of the donkey and had a previous conversation with him. Sometime before this. Jesus had been walking along the road. This guy had a donkey. Jesus says, someday I'm going to come along. I'm going to need your donkey. The guy says, no problem. He says, don't let anyone ride that coat. I'm going to need it. One day, a couple of guys are going to come. They're going to say, the Lord needs that. Give it to them. Okay, sorted. Could be. We don't know. We just don't know. But here's what we do know. Is that they went and they found the colt. Next verses. Outside in the street. Tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing? Untie my coat. Why are you nicking my car? Basically is what they're saying. They answered that Jesus had told them and the people let them go, which would indicate there was some prior understanding. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. That's Luke's version. Luke's a doctor. Luke likes a little bit of extra detail. Doctors like to just to point out the details. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And here's what I've written down here. When you do what God tells you to do, it will happen just as he told you it would. When you do what Jesus has told you to do, it will happen just as he told you it would. When you think about this, this doesn't make sense. What does he tell them to do? He says, untie the donkey, untie the colt, and when they stop you, tell them the Lord needs it. To me, that feels like it's the wrong way around. Why didn't he say to the disciples, go to the people who own the donkey, say the Lord needs it, and untie the colt? Do you ever think about that? It just that makes more sense. Go to them, explain what you're doing, and then untie it. No, Jesus says, no, untie it, and then explain why you're doing it. It, it feels like it's the, the wrong way round. Sometimes God asks us to do some things that on the surface just don't make sense. They just they seem like the wrong way around. They don't seem to make human sense. Sometimes God asks us to do some things that, according to human reason, we think they should be done a different way. Sometimes God will ask you to do things that others will tell you that just is silly, that's ridiculous. Tithing, tithing, giving, doesn't make sense. Why would you give your money? Like the stuff you could buy with that money. You could spend it on yourself. Why would you tithe? Why would you give? Especially if you're a young couple saving for a house. Why would you tithe? It doesn't make sense. So why would you do it? Because Jesus told you to. Serving in the kids' 
area, in the crash, in the kitchen, on welcome, wherever it is. It doesn't make sense. Why would you do it when you can come in and just be a consumer and, and go out and never have given or served anywhere? It doesn't make sense unless God told you to serve. Forgiving. Why would you forgive someone who hurt you? Why would you not carry offense? Why would you not take an opportunity to get revenge and get back at them when you can? It doesn't make sense to forgive unless God told you to. Sharing your faith, speaking up about things that the Bible says in a public setting, in a hostile world, you'll get ridiculed, you'll get criticized. It doesn't make sense. Why not just keep your head down and say nothing? It doesn't make sense unless Jesus told you to. God doesn't need me to fully understand. He just wants me to fully obey. And as I obey, I understand. You see, we want to understand before we obey, but we need to understand that faith obeys before it understands. The world says, once I understand, then I'll do it because it makes sense. The Bible teaches that faith is believing for what we hope for and is being certain of what we do not yet see. Faith acts and obeys and then understanding comes. Even when I don't feel like it. Even when others are telling me not to. Even when there's pressure to conform. Even when it doesn't make sense. Will you do it just because Jesus has told you to? The reality is that there's some things you'll never understand this side of heaven. There's some things God will do in your life and some things Jesus will ask you to do and you will never understand this side of heaven. Why? But will you do it anyway just because he told you to? Because obedience to God always brings blessing. It might not look like blessing. It might not show up as a bunch of cash or a Rolls Royce. But obedience to God always inherently carries a blessing within it. At first it might look like the opposite, but there is always blessing, but it might not look like it. Take the cross, take Gethsemane. Jesus is in Gethsemane and he's saying, God, I don't want to do this if there's any other way because he knows the excruciating physical pain, but not only that, the spiritual weight of every sin in history that will be laid upon him. And he's saying, God, if there's, no, if there's any other way, and the Father says there's not, and he says, well, then not my will, but yours be done. And as he hung on the cross on that Friday, it didn't make sense. To the people around him, it didn't make sense. It looked like obedience to the Father had failed him. It looked like defeat. It looked ridiculous. It looked like darkness and death had won. But that was Friday and Sunday's coming. It didn't make sense on Friday. But by Sunday it did. The blessing and the outcome is God's department. Obedience is mine. The outcome is his call. Obedience is, is my choice. It didn't make sense for Noah to build a boat when there wasn't a drop of rain. It didn't make sense for Joshua to walk around these walls six days in a row and nothing happened. Can you imagine day four of the soldiers going, Joshua, what are we doing? 
It didn't make sense for Nehemiah to rebuild the ruined walls of Jerusalem. It didn't make sense for Peter to put his net on the other side of the boat when he'd been fishing all night and caught nothing. It didn't make sense for a little boy to give five loaves and two fish when there were thousands of people to be fed. It didn't make sense. And yet God takes the things that don't make sense and he does something spectacular with them. If you're waiting for him to make sense, nothing significant will ever happen. But if you will trust just because he said so, then you will see him move. Do what he has told you to do. Go where he sends you. Give what he tells you to give. Speak what he says to you. Walk away and leave behind what he has told you to walk away from. If it's not for you, to live the victorious Christian life. To live victorious, sometimes you've got to be willing to look ridiculous. To live victorious, sometimes you've got to be willing to look ridiculous. Let's keep going. Mark 11, 7 to 11. When they brought the coat to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple court. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany. Bethany was about two miles away where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived with the twelve. That was his kind of home base. So, They bring the colt, they bring the donkey, and it says he sat on it. And so begins this procession into Jerusalem. And Jesus goes along with it because, like I said, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's getting attention, which will be so great that the religious authorities have no choice but to take action. He's like the movie director directing the drama. He's not an actor. He's not a pawn. He's not an extra. He is the director. He knows exactly what's happening. He's raising the threat level against the religious authorities so much that by Friday they will execute him precisely on the divine sovereign schedule. He's agitating his enemies because he knows that's the will of God. And I just want to say to you this morning, God's timing is perfect. Jesus is doing this on Sunday to get to where he needs to get to on Friday. He knows exactly what time he's going to be crucified. And in your life, his timing is perfect. He's never too late. He's never too early. But it normally feels like he's late. But he's right on time. God's timing is perfect. He knows what he's doing right now in your life. And look what it says. It says they threw their coats on the ground. They threw their cloaks on the ground. In those days when a king would come into town, you would throw your cloak on the ground. We see this with the coronation of King Jehu in the the book of Kings. And what this was basically saying is, I'm throwing my coat on the ground. You can trample on it. In other words, I submit to your authority. I am under your feet. And the wave branches... And this was a sign of victory. This was a sign of celebration. This was what you did when a conquering king came into town. You waved branches. And so we have this seeming coronation of the king. There's huge symbolism here. It looks like the victory parade of a king because in one sense it is because Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Lord. Yet he comes now 
not on a horse, because a king in those days rode a horse. He comes on a donkey, and not even a donkey, a colt, which is a baby donkey. A colt was a donkey under four years old. It's, he's making a bit of a mockery, actually, of human kingship. It would be me, like, me riding in here on a kid's tricycle. That's what it looked like. This baby donkey and this grown man, 33 years old, sitting on it. He's mocking the way the kings of his age uh, promote their authority. It's a parody, if you like, of human kingship. And yet the people don't get it because they're so enthusiastic and so passionate that they just want him to to deliver them from oppression. They want a military Messiah who overthrows the Romans. And so they're shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! Which means, save now! Save now, Jesus! Now's the time! Save now! And that sounds really good because we know that Jesus is the Savior. That makes sense until you begin to understand that different words in different cultures mean different things. If you've ever been to America, the first time somebody says, I'd love to, I love your pants. Same word, different meaning. Can I put that in your trunk? What am I, an elephant? They're what we call the ground floor. They call the first floor. What we call the first floor, they call the second floor. It's confusing. Timetable, a schedule. Cookie, biscuit. Chips, now this is a complicated one. Chips are crisps. But crisps are potato fries. But french fries are chips. Just speaking American to you. And so different words have different meanings. And so when we hear save now, this sounds really good. But what they're really saying is this. They're actually saying, Jesus, save us from something completely different than Jesus came to save them from. They're saying, save us from the Romans. We want an earthly, political, military deliverance. We want a, a, a solution to an immediate temporary problem. Jesus, save us now. Save us from where we are now. Save us from being under oppression. Save us from the discomfort. Save us from the pain. Save us from what we're sitting under now. And Jesus will save them, but not from their immediate temporary problems, but from their eternal permanent problem. And that was their sin that separated them from a holy, righteous God. Jesus wasn't going to give them what they wanted most. He was going to give them what they needed most. And sometimes in our life, Jesus doesn't give us what we want, but he gives us what we need. We're saying, give me this, give me this, give me this. I need you to do this. And God's going, I know you want me to do this, but if I do that, that's just a solution to a temporary problem. If I do this, this is what you actually really need. And they're shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the Son of David. It sounds like worship. It sounds like praise. It sounds like adoration. It sounds like they're really understanding who he is. It's like true devotion and faith, but it's not. It's superficial. It's shallow. It's just an emotional frenzy and hype that they've all been whipped up into. And it's based on one thing, and that is this. Jesus, 
we want you to do what we tell you to do. Jesus, you're going to do what we want you to do. And therefore, we'll worship you. Therefore, we'll praise you. As long as you meet our expectations, as long as you meet our immediate needs, we will worship you. We will praise you. We will honor you. But when he doesn't do it, when he doesn't fulfill their expectations, when he doesn't meet their demands, next slide, five days later, the crowd turns. Mark 15. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him! They shouted, why? What crime has he committed? But they shouted all the louder, crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Instead of shouting, crown him, five days later, they're shouting, kill him. Instead of shouting, coronate the king, they're shouting, crucify him. You see, people come to Jesus for many reasons today. People come to Jesus to solve temporary problems. People come for purpose in their life, for meaning in their life. People come for healing and for, to, to, to have their pain gone and for peace and for, um, for emotional reasons and, and for happiness. People come to Jesus for all. And in one sense, I understand that that's okay. I came to Jesus 27, no, 29 years ago in a very emotional moment at Summer Madness. It was purely emotional. I cried, I wept, I said, I need Jesus. It was based on an emotional experience. So I'm not knocking that because the heart is always engaged. But if that is all it is, it won't stick. If, if you only come to Jesus to get what you want from him. Unless what you want from him is forgiveness of sins, you will not stay. Because at some stage, he will not meet your expectations. At some stage, he will let you down. It will seem. At some stage, he won't do what you want him to do. He won't answer your prayer. At some stage, the bottom will drop out of your world. And if you've come to Jesus because you think he's a genie in a lamp who does whatever you wish, you will not stick it out. But if you come to him for forgiveness of sins, if you understand the real reason he came, that there's a holy God and you were separated by sin and that you're going to hell without Jesus, but Jesus came and took your sin and your shame on the cross and through faith in him you can be forgiven. If you come to him for that purpose, you will stick it out no matter what because you will understand the real reason. And the, and the storms may blow and all hell may break loose and the bottom may drop out of your world, but that doesn't change your eternal security because Christ is your saviour. So let me ask you today, who's following who? See, we say we're following Jesus, but I wonder sometimes if we're thinking that Jesus is following us. We might say we're doing what he wants us to do, but actually are we just trying to get him to do what we want him to do? The crowd here, we're very happy to shout Hosanna and to worship because it didn't cost them anything. It doesn't cost anything to sing songs or raise your hands, folks. It doesn't cost much to come here on a Sunday. It costs a little bit more at half nine than half eleven. It doesn't cost much. There's not a big sacrifice involved. But what happens when Jesus asks you to do something that you don't want to do, or he tells you not to do something that you do want to do? That's when you know, is he really Lord of your life, or is he just an accessory and an add-on? 
to make your life a little bit better. You know, I was going to change the title of this sermon. I called it Fickle or Faithful. And I decided yesterday, but it was too late because I'd already put it on Facebook. I decided that the better title would be I'd Rather Be a Donkey. I'd rather be a donkey. Why? Because the crowd, all they wanted to u- was to use Jesus where the donkey just wanted to be used by Jesus. His sole purpose was to be used by Jesus. He had no expectations. He was just there to be used by Jesus for whatever purpose Jesus wanted him to, where the crowd wanted to use Jesus for their purpose. And when he didn't fulfill their purpose, they changed from crown him to crucify The crowd were, do what I want. Help me accomplish my goals, my plans, my purposes, my desires. The donkey was just like, I'm only here for your purposes. Eat all. And I'd rather be a donkey than a crowd. I would rather be somebody who just says, I'm here for you rather than you're here for me, Jesus. Jesus is not here to fulfill my purpose in life. I'm here to fulfill his purpose. And you know what? People are fickle. It doesn't take long to realize that in life, sure it doesn't. People are fickle. People come and people go in life. People will love you one day and hate you the next. People will be your best friend one day and betray you the next. Even those who are closest to you. If you've ever had it happen to you, it hurts badly. It hurts deeply. People are fickle because humans are human. And the human heart is deceitful above all things. But Jesus isn't fickle. Jesus is faithful. Jesus followed through. Jesus went right to the end. Jesus didn't back down. Jesus wasn't worried about popularity or the crowds or or applause or praise because he knew it was in the heart of man and he didn't commit himself to any man, it says in John's Gospel. But Jesus knew what the Father wanted him to do. And he was faithful while the crowd were fickle. And people in your life will be fickle, but I want to tell you Jesus isn't fickle. Jesus is faithful. Jesus will go right to the end. He will do whatever it takes to save you. You see, the people wanted blood, the blood of the Romans. They wanted cries of victory. They wanted spears. They wanted a war. And they got it, but not how they expected. They got blood. Jesus' blood poured out on Calvary's cross and sacrifice. They got a spear that was thrust into his side. They got a cry of victory as he shouted, test and let's die, it is finished. And they got a war as the hordes of hell were defeated when Jesus rose again. They got a victory, but not the victory they expected. And because of that victory, there's another day coming when Jesus will come not on a donkey, but he will come on a white horse, followed by the armies of heaven. Let's read Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven are following him riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads a winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thighs, on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of 
and glorious. Our Savior will come back, not in humility, but in glory. On a white horse, followed by the armies of heaven, unleashing glorious holy powers of heaven upon earth in judgment and victory. And that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. But we have the choice to do that today. And if we say Jesus is Lord, that means more than just turning up. That means more than just singing Hosanna. That means more than just lifting our hands and going through the motions. Because the crowd can do that. And it's easy to be part of a crowd and to be whipped up in an emotional frenzy. But I'd rather be a donkey. I would rather be a donkey. I would rather be someone who says, Jesus, here I am. I'm set aside for your purpose. And whatever you want, my job is just to carry you wherever you want to go. Let's pray together as the worship team come up.